This week on Punch Mountain, a mechanic must stop at nothing to clear his name and put a crooked cop behind bars. But it's gonna cost him, we gotta charge for parts, and then there's labor. Strap in and put your helmet on because we're watching Lost Bullet. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies, not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake. I am joined, as always, by a man who never lost a bullet or his thick French accent, Monsieur David Hada. Mr. Go-Fast himself, Mac Blake, how are you today? Oh, that's more... What the hell was that? It sounded okay to me, David, but of course I have the, the dumb ears of an American. David, how good to talk to you. Uh, we're talking tonight about a French action movie. Does such a thing exist? Of course. It is Lost Bullet. Yes, it's the, the true story of a man who ran away. Uh, so that's all French action. Is that still a stereotype that carries that the, the French are just a bunch of cowards? Oh, I thought you were going to say there's a stereotype that Frenchmen abandon their wives or families. Because <laughs> when you said run away, I just was like, oh, from his problems. I, you know what? I don't know. You know, David, I was at my uh, job today at, at Cardiff Electric. Someone, uh, a couple of cues next to me was speaking French. And normally it would, I'd know, I think I'd notice it a little bit faster, but because I just watched Last Bullet, I was like, yeah, sure. It's probably talking about Go Fast Cars. So David, Last Bullet was a 2020, a 2020 release? That's correct. The end of 2020 on Netflix. What did you know about Last Bullet before we watched it? Anything? Mac, I didn't know a goddamn thing about this movie. When we were setting our calendar to do, you know, upcoming movies, you had said, there's a movie I have in mind. I know very little about it, and I'm not going to tell you anything until I do. And then I knew about it a few days before we recorded. This is the coldest I've ever gone into a movie, I think, ever. Maybe even outside of this show. I, I went in knowing nothing. I did no research. I knew the title was Lost Bullet so I could look it up. This is going to be a treat. This is, I feel like we're introducing this movie to people. So I, I guess my question for you, Mac, is how did this get on your radar? How did we end up doing this movie tonight? Well, I'm right there with you, Dave. This is the coldest that I've gone into a movie uh, that I can remember. Uh, yeah, I follow film writer Priscilla Page on Twitter. Or do I still? Is she still even still on there? I don't know. But she's a fun follow, and she champions a lot of movies that I enjoy. And she does these like fun deep dives into movies like uh, Hunt for Red October, etc. And she had a tweet where she said, Lost Bullet 1 and Lost Bullet 2 are quickly becoming some of my favorite action movies. And I was like, that's it. That's all I want to know. I think I remember seeing a picture of a car like flipping over. I don't know if it was from LB or LB2. So I knew at some point I wanted to watch one of those movies. And I was going to try to avoid any information about it because, yeah, man, when's the last time you saw a movie cold? I, I don't... It has been forever. And I did peek in to see which movie got better reviews. And I think Last Bullet 2, people seem to like that a little bit more. But selfishly, David, I was like, if we're going to watch both, I want to start at the start, see what this franchise is about. So that's why I chose LB1, Lost Bullet. What did you think about this movie? I liked it quite a bit. You know, I was very excited to do a French action movie. I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is going to be our first European action movie. So I wanted to get some representation up on the up on the shelves. Knowing nothing about it was was an added bonus. So watching it unfold was just this absolute treat. You know, not really knowing where it's going, not having any sort of preconceived notions about what I wanted out of it. It's a straight ahead action movie. It's perfect TV viewing, Mac. I'm really excited to to talk about this and hopefully introduce this to some people who haven't heard of it before. Yeah, this movie is on Netflix. And you're right, David, in terms of being TV viewing, because this movie to me is like the perfect Netflix movie. And what I mean by that is it is perfect for home viewing. 
Like Need for Speed, we reviewed that last movie. I bet seeing that on the big screen, there would have been some cool things with like the sound design. I mean, you could tell by how much that movie leaned into the of the cars that that probably would have been really fun to see with some theater level speakers. The Mummy, another movie I watched for the first time on my television. But I bet seeing that in theaters, like a weekend matinee when that first came out, that would have been fun. Cliffhanger, another movie I've only seen on my TV was Stallone. I bet seeing that on the big screen, the stunts would have been really fun. Even Olympus Has Fallen, I feel like would have been fun to have seen in theaters because then afterwards, I probably would have been recruited by some weird right-wing organization. Hey, uh, you agree with that? <laughs> but there's something about Lost Bullet where it's like the action is great. It's a lot of fun. The movie's very fast-paced. It's a compact running time. But there's something about the movie which I don't feel like it demands a big screen viewing experience to properly enjoy. That sounds like I'm knocking it, but I'm I'm not. Because I feel like, you know, if, if you're going to make a movie, all of these movies are going to end up on TV. Like this idea of like keeping the cinema experience sacred, I get behind that. But like Christopher Nolan, he knows that after a couple months, if you want to see Oppenheimer, you're going to have to watch it on your phone or what have you. So this being a good Netflix movie, thank you, Lost Bullet. I appreciate that. No, you're absolutely correct. In fact, when we got done watching it, I turned to the bombshell and I was like, do you want to start watching Miami Vice? Like, it just felt like a TV hour-long crime procedural that was just made into a supersized episode where they had a bigger budget. They could do some more stuff action-wise. You know, this is right at home on TV. I, I, I really feel good doing this episode. It's funny you mentioned Miami Vice because the pilot had that, like, famous scene where there's, like, a lot of driving set to In the Air Tonight. That was kind of, like, a cool, moody moment. This movie does not have a lot of, like, vibes. You know what? It doesn't waste time on atmosphere. We got some cars to smash. We got to fucking smash them. Let's get going. But for Lost Bullet, I think it fucking works because this movie's uh, it's a car smasher. It goes fast. That is true. David, before we go any further, though, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. If you search Lost Bullet on Google, the results include these frequently asked questions. So we'll do some quickly provided answers. David, is Lost Bullet worth watching? Yeah, it's worth watching. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you have somewhere to be? Mac, is Lost Bullet 1 and 2 connected? Yes, David. They're both part of the Lostiverse, along with the movie Lost Boys, Vampires. David, what is the plot of Lost Bullet? The plot of Lost Bullet is don't piss off your mechanic because they know the soft spots of your car. Mac, is there Lost Bullet 3 movie? Is there Lost Bullet 3 movie? Someday, yes, will be soon. David, before we dive, or should I say drive, into the story of a criminal recruited by the cops for his ability to turn cars into battering rams, let's check in with two friends who have the ability to turn their cars into crumb-filled bedrooms. Sadly, that's us. It's a friendship check-in. Our friendship, David Hotta, how are you? I'm doing well. That is a tragically apt description of my relationship with automobiles. It's why it's one of the main reasons why I don't have a car anymore. I got rid of it eight years ago because I was like, this is just an extension of myself and it's the uglier parts of me. Like, I don't want to get into this every day and just be reminded of how I live. There was a period of time when I think I ate most meals in my car. I think that was my relationship to uh, food, whereas like it's just something to put in my body so I can keep doing whatever I want to be doing. And then I think I went through a period of time where I got a lot better about not eating in my car. And then now that I have a kid, it's the car is basically like the bottom of a toaster. Just dump that into your car uh, on a daily basis. It doesn't matter how much I vacuum. Those crumbs will be there. But David, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well. I'm scatterbrained, to be perfectly honest with you. It's been a very rough week. I uh, went for a walk today. It was very nice. Actually, you know what? Best part of my day. I went for a walk and f- and found one of those little like neighborhood libraries. Are you familiar with these, Mac? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I found a book. I found Where the Sidewalk Ends. I found a copy of, of that in one of those libraries. 
And I took it home with me because I've never owned a copy of it. It was it was really just one of those things that like immediately brightened my day. The idea of taking this book from a child who could use it and need it and just putting it on a shelf for, to, to, as a collector's item, I guess. Now I'm saying it out loud. I feel terrible. Yeah, you really, you're bragging about denying a child a chance to <laughs> put some wonder into their world. I'll throw, I'll throw some books in there. Yeah, David, my neighborhood is lousy with those little libraries. And I love them because, look, if I took my copy of uh, John Steinbeck's The Pearl and East of Eden to Half Price Books, they'd laugh me out of the building. But I can get it out of my house and not just like throw it in the trash because someone's going to have to do a book report on either of those books, which are, are great. Well, not The Pearl. That short story sucks. Oh, no, Kid Die. Pearl bad. Oh, no. But how are you, Mac Blake? I don't know, David. I'm going to be straight up honest with you. I do not know. I'm in another U2 phase right now. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. You know, I, I started listening to Bono's audiobook, and I'm pausing it to like check out their older stuff. What's happening? <laughs> I'm getting emotional at like the most well-worn songs you've ever heard in your life. Let's start from the start. When when did this when did the sickness begin with you? Last week. Oh, well, originally, because you said this was your uh, an, another go round on YouTube. Oh, Is this like a yeah, yeah. mid '30s thing? That's another good question. The my first like. Big U2 phase was late 30s about to become a dad. And so I was like, okay, is this a late 30s thing? Or is this I'm about to become a dad thing? Or, and then somebody suggested like, nah, man, U2 slaps. <laughs> I was like, well, then why wasn't I into them before? Why this period of time? I mean, this is a little bit of uh, emotional turmoil going on. Things are a little bit busy, but are they U2 phase busy? I don't know. I think they might be. I get it. No, I was I was there too. My late 30s, I was in San Francisco. I was in a real bad way. And I just needed a soundtrack for the waves crashing and the sun setting. And yeah, U2 really fits that bill. So I, I get it, old people. Yeah, I mean, life has so many mysterious ways. You just don't know if it's going to go like one direction or another, right? You know, sometimes you just want to find yourself where the streets have no name. I completely get that. <laughs> Look, you didn't think I would do that one, David? Felt too forced to me. Yeah, well, I'm coming in second on this one, all right? <laughs> Let's see, that's true. I didn't leave you a lot of... What's the other big... What's the other single off of Actung Baby? Oh, yeah. Yeah, David, this conversation we're having is even better than the real thing. Okay, you're right. It's hard. Well, David, even though I still have not found what I'm looking for, is it time to look into the movie Lost Bullet? Joshua Tree, Mac. We're going in. That has been your worst one. <laughs> and the award for shoehorn of the year goes to you. Get up here, you son of a bitch. David Hanna, we did it. Nice. All right, David. For the people who have not seen Lost Bullet, which might be everyone, this is a semi-obscure film. Can you give the back of the box description? And of course, since it's a Netflix-only release, whatever the fuck that means. Facing a murder charge, a genius mechanic with a criminal past must track down a missing car containing the proof of his innocence. A single bullet. 2020, 93 minutes, directed by Guillaume Pierre, rated TVMA. That feels weird. I don't like that. TVMA. Yeah, that is weird. I mean, it's not a bad back of this. Very succinct. But where's the sizzle? But this, like you said at the top of the show, this is a movie without sizzle. Like reading this, it kind of feels like this is what the movie wrote about itself. Is like, this is true. Start reading. I'm like, okay, I'm, uh, thanks, movie. Yeah, it's like 2029, 20, three minutes directed. By, we gotta go. <laughs> All right, David. Well, fuck it. Let's follow suit. Let's get into this thing. How does this movie start? Mac, this movie's going to start with some dramatic welding. This movie starts in an auto shop where auto mechanic Lino, played by Alban Lenoir, is death-proofing his Renault Clio. David, Renault Clio, is that the name of like an elite international jewel thief? It's a car, Mac. Think before you speak. Lino's plan is to use this car to bust through the storefront of a jewelry store and rob it to help surrogate little brother Quentin, played by Rod Parado, pay off a $10,000 debt to some nondescript baddies. 
The turbocharged car works a little too well, creating a hole clear through the store. Lino gets stuck in the car and gets sent to prison while Quentin was able to escape. While in prison, Lino meets detectives Charas and Moss, played by Ramsey Bedia and Pascal Orbillo, who offer him a job helping the police build turbo cars to help catch an army of go-fast smugglers. Dang, a lot happens in the opening of this movie. So David, this movie does not waste a lot of time with exposition, right? We see Lino, he's like welding together like this reinforced grill to go in the front of the car. Quentin gets in the car. You see his face is like all fucked up. And he's like, yeah, we're going to do this to repay the debt. So the fact that like his face is fucked up, that tells you the audience, this dude's in trouble. He's already been beaten once for it. That visual does the talking. We don't need to actually like waste time or spend time like expanding on the idea or even why he owes this money. They got their own money. They got to do this thing. And the way they're going to do it is they're going to turn this car into a fucking battering ram and batter their way through uh, a jewelry store. Mac, the first gold star I'm going to give to this movie is for its narrative economy, especially coming off of a movie like Need for Speed last week, where one of my biggest notes was every single interaction is maybe like 30 seconds too long. And it's just it's a lot of padding. It's a lot of needless just hoping to fill out the movie. This has none of it. Like, this really is, the movie is showing you what it means. It's telling you, oh, here's a mechanic. He's working on a car. He's making that car tough. He's going to drive that car through a building. And that's all you need. Like, the movie does not waste a lot of time with words. This script has to be, like, 38 pages long. And I'm super okay with it. This is the kind of movie I want. Don't waste time with stuff. Just get to the stuff. How dare you criticize Need for Speed? That was my biggest punch up for this movie is that it needed a radio, internet radio host who secretly has his own, What I can't even remember the fucking setup for Michael Keaton's character Need for Speed. But if for some reason you skip that episode or skip the movie, go back because that is such a weird fucking thing. Was it? It's the Monarch, right? The Monarch, yeah. This, this movie would be 20 minutes longer because it would just be Michael Keaton be like, all right, so what he's doing now is he's he's making his car stronger to drive it through the building. It's like, yeah, we see it, pal. You don't need to tell us. Hey, race fans, you guys know what we're watching now. It's a genuine old smash and crash. What Lino's done to the car, we get it. But David, there's a, there's a cool moment here where Lino's like, we're doing this thing. This is the only way to get your money back is to smash this jewelry store. And Quentin's kind of like questioning him like, is this, do I have to be there? But Lino says, I need weight in the front, meaning you have to sit here. I love that I need weight in the front. That is how he's describing his friend as just weight. That tells me that Lino is both kind of nuts, but also he's dedicated to being kind of nuts. Like he, this plan is kind of fucking crazy, but he's taking it 100% seriously. And that kind of describes like Lino. He, I saw somebody uh, criticize his character as being a little wooden. And yeah, he doesn't have a whole lot of personality. His personality is like when he makes a dangerous or kind of like risky choice, there's no second guessing from this guy. He just fucking does it. Kind of like a battering ram of a car. He's like a battering ram of a human. You hear, you often hear the expression, you know, when you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. With I get that same sense with Lino where he has a car and every problem looks like a glass plated storefront. But the thing about it is he's not some dummy who's just driving cars willy nilly just to break into them. He knows his shit. And yeah, you're absolutely right. For him to know... If I don't have you in this front seat, this whole thing could go wrong. I appreciate that. I appreciate that he has he has a certain knowledge to automobiles where if he's going to turn this thing into a, a hammer, he knows exactly how to use that hammer. But not only does this car successfully bust through the concrete wall of the jewelry store, the front wall, it busts through like five back walls until it clears this building. This was kind of awesome. I wrote down in my notes, holy shit, 
because this car <laughs> busting through the building was not expected. It was, it was a cool moment. It's a cool moment. It's a funny moment. There are a lot of small funny moments throughout this movie, which is jarring, especially since it is not at all a comedy. Like it almost reminded me of Inglorious Bastards, where look, there's nothing that should be funny about that movie, but every once in a while, you catch yourself really laughing. This movie just will sneak in small stuff, and I'm like, why wasn't this a comedy? Why wasn't this just, you know, they clearly know how to make comedic moments out of tension. I, I, I would have liked to have seen a full comedy of this, but yeah, moments like this, it's a great way to start the movie. Again, more narrative economy. He built the car so good and so fast that instead of breaking the window of the store, he breaks the store completely and ends up clear on the other side. I enjoyed it. Well, how do we know that it's not more comedic? You know what I mean? Like, let's say the guy who plays Quinn was just delivering all his lines in a hilarious fashion. I would never know. That's true. And it does not help to listen to the dubbed version of this either. This is not as good as like a drunken master. This this movie does not benefit from people who don't quite know how to deliver the lines. Oh, shit. I didn't even try that. Did you watch it all dubbed or subbed? How did you view this thing? I did sub the first time because that's how I wanted to watch it. And then I did dubbed because I was taking notes and I wanted to be able to like look away and still take notes. So, but, but that doesn't really help a lot because I'm taking my first set of notes. And then like the first time you hear a piece of dialogue that doesn't really fit well, you kind of like, you have to look up anyway and you, you're taken away from your notes. Did you feel like the dub dialogue matched the sub dialogue? More so than the dub. Yeah. You know, subs are never going to be 100%. I would say the subs were maybe like 90% accurate as compared to the dubs 40% accuracy. It was mm. it was, it was was a scene, man. Yeah. Oh, I, have, I have a more specific question about that later. But when they bust through the wall, Lino's seatbelt will not work. He tells Quentin to get out of here. He's like, there's no reason for you to stay. I'll take the heat. And then... Sure enough, he was arrested because we cut to prison. Which, by the way, David, compared to the American prisons I've seen on American TV shows, this prison looks nice. This is very nice. Yeah, it's bright. It's sunny. You almost forget that people don't treat their prisons like um, prisons. During my first walkthrough, I was like, who did the set design for this movie? They've clearly never been to a prison. These walls have clearly not been smeared with blood and feces before. Just being in this room doesn't feel like torture for these people. I don't get it. Oh, those Europeans, when will they learn? Are they trying to rehabilitate them? Come on, guys. But we're in this prison because we're meeting uh, Charis and Moss. Uh, these are going to be two detectives, again, played by Ramsey Bedia and Pascal Arbio. I am going to enjoy my French accent in this episode. But they're there to recruit Lino. And uh, I got to tell you, Charis seems like a real big fan of Lino from the start. He's like, I need a magician. And he's a magician with a car. So uh, already a love bond between them two. Yeah, Moss is not so into it, but Jaras is like all on board. And David, God, cops love to recruit criminals, right? They love it. How many how many times when criminals get arrested are the cops like, ooh, I'm saving you for later in case I need like an expert safe cracker or in this case, an expert car smasher? It's a bad look when you're like, hey, we're all out of ideas. Let's just hire the person who showed us our ass every single time. It can instill confidence in people. So in case you doubted that Lino is some kind of genius mechanical engineer, in case you doubted that, there's a moment here where Lino anticipates that some other prisoners are going to bully him off a weight bench. And so he unscrews a part of the weight bench, like the back of it. And so when the bully prisoner lifts up the weight, he then falls backwards in the way, like, I don't know, crushes his throat or something. It kind of happens in the background. It's not too graphic. Here's a punch up right there. If you're going to crush a dude's throat, I want to see it. But Shara sits down with Lino and he's like, here's why we need you. Because Shara claims that his cops, they need better cars than the drug dealers because the drug dealers... They're, when they're transporting their uh, kilos of cocaine or methamphetamine or whatever, that they are driving these cars that are too fast to catch. Now, it seems to me, David, that the cops should be maybe trying to stop this drug trade 
higher up the food chain, higher up the ladder than targeting the delivery cars. But you know what? That's the movie. And so (laughs) if you don't like it, get the fuck out of here because this is the world we're living in. Are the cops going to get funding for rams to batter down doors of drug-making factories? No, they're going to get funding for awesome murder supercars. This is exactly what we want out of this movie. Yeah, let's not look for clues to see where the drugs are being imported or where they're being made or where, you know, follow the money. They're like, no, follow the cars and smash them up good. Lino, though, he's he's considering this option and he pretty much agrees. He, you know, it's a pretty good deal. It's basically a work release. Like, he gets to get out of this prison. He gets to work on cars. You know, it's a pretty sweet deal. Sharis gives him a little dossier. He's like, well, think about it. You know, I'll come pick you up tomorrow at seven. Try not to get killed. And this dossier is full of like the files of the cops who are on this anti-go-fast task force. First of all, Sharis is very trusting of Lino to give him this dossier full of sensitive information about cops. My question is why? Why does Lino need to know anything about these police officers? Does he need to know their weight so that he could distribute the weight properly in the cars? Like... This is information this guy doesn't need. It's really just information the audience thinks they need. Yeah, in my mind, the files have other information in there that Lino could use. Like the dossiers was just like part of a larger file. But but you're right, David, I don't know. I do not have a good answer for that. But as Lino's looking through the dossiers, he stops at the dossier of Julia and he kind of gives it a look. Your first time watching this, David, what did you think that look meant? I thought that look meant that he knew her from his past, that... It was setting up some kind of tension, like, oh, this is bad news. Julia's on the case. But uh, I I was wrong in that reading, Mac, I guess. What what did you think? No, the exact same thing. I thought it was a look of recognition, but it turns out later he just was like, this cop is very beautiful. (laughs) But Mac, we're going to jump ahead two years where Lino has a pretty good life. He's working on cars and being friends with Sharas. He's having an awkward relationship with an attractive detective named Julia, played by Steffi Selma. And he's being treated like shit by another cop named Marco, played by Sebastian Lelaine. Marco's partner, the hotshot police jerk Oreski, played by Nicolas Duvachel, sure is nice, though. Lino's efforts have proven successful as the cops use speed and brute force to subdue some speedy crooks. And by subdued, we mean smashed to death. It's an action set piece we'll call bad police work. Yeah, so we cut to these cars that Lino has worked on. They're like in action, right? There is a drug running car that's you know getting away. And, and we see that this like super car that Julia is driving it's got like a crazy battering ram front and and it looks like the bad guys are going to get away because they like flip some switch. You see like a small explosion in their hood, but it, it propels the car forward. And it's like, oh, maybe the bad guy's going to get away. Maybe it doesn't. We don't get a chance to find out if Julia can catch these drug runners because then another police car comes and smashes into it with a head-on collision. And I was like, oh, shit, Duh, what a terrible accident. But then the cops get out of their battering ram car and like, no, wait, this wasn't an accident. This was their plan. Like they smashed into the the drug car on purpose. And then David, everyone in the criminal drug car is fucking dead. They are goo. The cops are celebrating. They're like reaching over this pile of blood and guts to grab the money and the drugs. Like we did it. It's so early in the movie and it's a French movie. So I'm already lost. But it's like, (laughs) was this the plan or is this a guy, a, a hothead? Like, you know, did he call an audible and decide fuck it, I'll just ram into him. So like, if this is the plan to just be like the ram fast squad, I'm not sure it's going to hold up very well. Well, both, because it was not the plan. But then when Oreski did smash into him, he got out of his car and the first thing he says is, who's the boss? Which I was wondering in the dub version, do you know if he says that there? He does say who's the boss, yeah. Who's the man, who's your daddy? I guess 
The French are a little more progressive about their shit talk, and they're like, no, 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 a boss is okay. So yeah, it was not the plan to do a head-on collision to kill these guys, but then after he does it, nobody's like, a rescue, what the fuck? We could have interviewed these people. Also, they did open fire, that's true, the bad guys. So I guess it was, lethal force was, was authorized, but at the same time, you could have swerved at the last second, maybe just clipped the car, but he's like, no, fuck these guys. This is just some unnecessary bad police work here. Some police murder. Bad police work, bad criminal work also, because let's talk about this turbo boost that they have in the car, that in the getaway car. Yeah. Because it's a very familiar panel. In fact, we saw it at the beginning of the movie. Uh, Lena was putting a very similar type of panel in his car for the turbo boost. So the criminals are trying to get away. They flip the turbo boost. I think it's called injection splitter. And immediately they get this, you know, it's like knocks, boom. They shoot off at at warp speed. They're getting away from the cops. But then after like a thousand yards or something, the whole engine goes kaput and the car starts to like fail. It really could have just pulled over to the side of the road eventually if Oreski had not obliterated it head on. We see it at the beginning when it makes sense to use it to crash through a storefront and only go a thousand yards. But these criminals are in a high speed chase what was their plan? What did they think was going to happen? Or did they even know that it was going to fail after a thousand yards? I'm left with with a lot of questions early on. Well, did we find out that the this new boosting switch is not the work of Lino. It's the work of his uh, surrogate brother, Quentin. And so Quentin is making his version of Lino's device. So in my mind, Quentin's just not as good a mechanic as Lino. And these are the results. But you're right, though. The movie didn't say that. I'm doing the work. But the cops come back to the garage where you see Lino working uh, with another detective. And the cops are really happy. They want to celebrate this amazing smashed human victory. But some people respect Lino and then some people don't. They treat him like shit. But uh, this is Lino's life now. But Charis is not one of those people who treats Lino like shit. He's, he's very good to Lino. In fact, he has uh, some good news for Lino in the form of an early release and the promise of a steady job with the cops. Supercharging a brand new fleet of muscle cars. But first, Charis needs answers. He found a familiar looking booster switch in one of the criminal go-fasts that points to Lino's old buddy Quentin. Charis and Lino go to the chop shop where Quentin is now working off his debt to the still nondescript baddie Jacques played by Patrick Medioni. But Charis's plans of busting Jacques are interrupted when Oreski and Marco, revealed to be corrupt as fuck, make a power play and Oreski shoots Charis. The bullet from his gun lodging itself in Charis's trademark Red Renault 21. Lino tries to make a run for it, but is apprehended at a nearby gas station. David, we talked before about how characters will act shitty. And later on, when that character gets murdered, you don't feel bad about it because those characters are jerks. Do they deserve to die? No, but they're jerks. And so I don't mind seeing a fictional jerk get wasted. We have a term for that, David. It's signing your uh, murder permission slip. But David, we need a new term for when characters clearly are like tempting fate just asking to be killed by talking about like future plans or their or future visions. There's got to be like a ghost of uh, like future doom or something like that. Lito's got it great. He's out of prison. He's got a good job. Here comes Charis. He shows him this brand new garage full of this brand new fleet of cars. Things are going to start happening now. Which one of you is going to die? It's like, let's make some future plans, says a guy with no future. But yeah, Shara shows Lino this like garage full of, were you guessing that those were impounded? Otherwise, where does this team get this, uh, the budget for a fleet of like brand new uh, street racing cars? 
I thought this was like a showroom. I thought those cars were like cardboard. They were just empty to stage the garage and be like, okay, this is what the garage will look like when it has cars. Shiraz and Lino go into this garage. Like you said, brand new fleet of cars. These aren't even police cruisers. These aren't, these haven't been fitted to be police ready. It's just, it's a showroom of like golden red cars. I almost thought that the two of them were going to go into business together. It's like, you once once we have your work release, my friend Lino, we will run a dealership together. And it's like, <laughs> no, no, no. They just, they still want to be cops, I guess. Or at least one of them does. And one of them's going to be indentured forever. Yeah, Petraris is like, yeah, before we pursue this future, we'll never see. I found this switch. It reminds me of your switch. Lino's like, it's probably my man, Quentin. He's like, let's go talk to him right now. Uh, no time like the present to get murdered is what they say. And so they show up to where Quentin is working, some chop shop place. And Quentin is like, Lino, what the fuck? And Lino's like, come on, you owe me a hug. I haven't seen you in two years. He's like, you need to get out of here because here comes some nondescript bad guys, Jacques and a generic bland Euro thug. Things go <laughs> sideways, David. And that's when Oreski, the backup that Charis called, that's when Oreski and Marco show up. But David, I think these dudes might be on the take because they murder Charis. Which, by the way, I, I'm I'm not proud to admit, caught me completely by surprise to the point of confusion, which on the second viewing, I should not have been surprised or confused by it. Because very early on, when the squad returns to the garage, when they're celebrating the murder of these, uh, of these criminals, Oreski's meeting with Moss and he's like... You know, he basically wants credit for the bust. He wants credit for the anti-go-fast brigade. He feels that Charis is just sort of being too modest about this. And upon first viewing, I'm just like, oh, this is a, you know, this is a cop show. This is a police procedural where you're always going to have that one hothead who wants a little more glory. But then watching it the second time and being like, oh, he's bad. Yeah, it. the movie's very obvious about telegraphing this. And uh, if you don't pick up on it, you're a dummy like me. By the way, I'm sick of these Europeans uh, flaunting how stylish they are, just rubbing in our fucking faces. Because Marco David, he's kind of supposed to be like the piece of shit cop. And he's supposed to be kind of a schlub. He still looks like, I don't know, he, he's wearing like a t-shirt and a hoodie. He still looks nicer than I've ever looked in my fucking life. Uh, I don't know what it is. <laughs> And then, but Oreski, his look is almost like too much. I mean, he he's like a more uh, H&M version of Ryan Gosling's character in Drive. You know, he's wearing this like little sporty kind of jacket and some like cool shades, whatever, and some very tight jeans. I'm like, hey, can you put on a uniform? You're looking, you look a little ridiculous. I, w- I want to do an interactive component with the audience right now. Uh, pull up your favorite uh, web browser. I'm going to go with Google, not sponsored. I'm going to type in Mark Ronson Varsity Jacket. You're familiar with Mark Ronson, the producer and uh, musician? Yes. Yes. So if you uh, do a Google search for that, the first few images that come up are going to be of the jacket that's in this movie. So uh, uh, just picture a detective running around looking like Mark Ronson, and you get the vibe of this movie so far. Will Uptown Funk, is it going to give it to him? We will find out. But David, on their way to go out and have a little adventure before Charles gets killed, Lino is asking Charles if he could take a look at his classic car, which is his trademark red, this old Renault. It even has a uh, special horn. So when Charis first comes to pick up Lino uh, to take him to the chop shop, he honks his horn. It's like a, it's a fog horn. It's, it's a, like, you know, he's coming in from, from the bay. And upon first viewing, I was like, that's curious, almost wrong. Like, I feel like the movie made a mistake with that. Again, I feel dumb. It turns out to be Chekhov's horn. That will come into play later. This movie knew what it was doing and I didn't. So as Lino confronts Quentin, in come the bad guys. They got their guns drawn, but oh, here's Charis. 
He's got him covered. And it looks like Charis is about to drive away, take Quentin out of there, and he's going to let a rescue and, and Marco deal with the other thugs. But that's when Marco shoots him. And that bullet, David, goes right through Charis and lodges itself in the dashboard of this Renault. David, that is the titular lost bullet. That is. I'm glad that there was an actual lost bullet and that it wasn't just poor translation because this is a car movie. Why is this movie called Lost Bullet? Sure enough, there is a bullet in play. This whole thing, despite the fact that I like the movie a lot, this whole thing is flawed. Because, again, it's it's it feels a little too sloppy. Like, for a rescue to have this whole plan in place, it's this Machiavellian plot to take over the anti-go-fast brigade from Sharis. He, he's going to eventually frame uh, Lino for the murder of, of Sharis. But, like, no thought went into this at all. A rescue plugs Sharis from behind. The bullet goes through the back windshield, goes through Sharis, goes into the dashboard. What, did, was he just caught off guard by this? Did he have an, a, a better plan and then just called an audible? Or is this just sloppy French criminal work? Yeah, I don't think there was some overarching plan. I, I got the feeling that Arescu was just making this up as he went along. In fact, Arescu and Marco, who are on the take, they did not expect Quentin to get arrested because Quentin knows too much. And as Arescu is like pretending to arrest Jacques, Jacques is like, you cannot let that kid escape. And Arescu's like, shut the fuck up, I know. And so him shooting... Charis was just like, fuck it, I don't know what else to do. His little window to be like, let me take the kid, kind of closed before it even had a chance to open it. So he just kind of panicked and shot Charis. And then, you know, he spends the rest of the movie trying to turn it to his advantage. And he almost does. He does a pretty good job for a slapdash plan. He does a really good job of keeping the walls from closing in on him. Like, if this was any other movie, this guy would be feeling the heat from bullet one. But he almost gets away with it. But Oreski was one of the few cops who's actually nice to Lino. And so now that Oreski murdered Charis, Lino doesn't know what to do. He just like runs away to a nearby gas station. He tries to call Julia and there's some cops at that gas station. He's quickly arrested. This is another funny moment though, because he goes to the gas station. He's got Charis's gun with him. You know, he grabbed it in a panic. So he runs to the gas station to use the phone, puts the gun down on the counter. And then there's kind of a pseudo misunderstanding where the guy behind the counter is like, uh, please don't rob me. Hey, cops, this guy's trying to rob me. And like another funny moment in a uh, in a wildly unfunny movie. But Mac, not knowing who to trust, Lino tells the cops he'll only speak to Julia. But a rescue shows up instead to feed Lino a story to use on investigators or else a rescue will pin Charis's murder on Lino. But Lino would rather kick ass and make a run for it. It's an action set piece we'll call. There's no way Lino can get past this many cops. Don't matter. He just did. So Lino is waiting in the interrogation room and in comes a rescue, unplugs the camera, which you, you would think that if you're the cops and a cop unplugs a camera and then this cop is later accused of being corrupt. I feel like that's almost like, a, oh yeah, he unplugged the camera. He is like, that's just something. Yeah. I cannot think of anything more suspicious or something that says I'm about to break a law than unplugging the camera in an interrogation room. I'll tell you what, though. On the flip side of that coin, if I'm Lino and Oreski unplugs the camera, I'm doing whatever I can to go ape shit. Because, hey, man, it goes both ways. If you can't get this on camera, I can do whatever I want. Unfortunately, uh, Lino is handcuffed to the table, but you're telling me you can't, like, ram that table into him or at least throw a chair, do something, you know, draw blood. But Oreski's like, hey, Lino, let's get our story straight. Maybe some rando criminal killed Charis, all right? And Lino was like, he's a little too smart to do this because he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then how long until you murder me? Not long at all. So Lino's not going along with this plan. And then Oreski is like, all right, well, any moment now they're going to discover Charis's burned car, his corpse, and I'm going to tell him that was you. So go fuck yourself. 
By the way, Lino in this scene is wearing a really dumb, I think it's a hoodie, right? It's a hoodie, yeah. And it says, pride or die. And it, it looks like like some sort of like generic, weird, almost like a, you, you know when people are getting those shirts that they're like MMA shirts, David? Like what, what were the name of the, do you remember the name of the brands? Like Tap Out or something like that? Uh, Tap Out's the one I think of. Yeah, I, I know there there was like a dozen others, but yeah. So that's why he's wearing this whole fucking movie is a shirt that says, pride or die. Look, Americans have been accused of getting really dumb tattoos in like uh, Chinese characters just because those like Chinese characters look cool or something. There must be some sort of like coolness factor to a dumb American motorcycle shirt that it works for the French audience. But for me, I just was like, why are you wearing this embarrassing hoodie the entire movie? I was almost hoping that it was a French translation of a hoodie where like pride or die translates into something that is a common French expression, but they're like, Oh, you know what? We need to sell this movie to international audiences. Let's make the police sign say police and let's make the hoodie say pride or die because they'll love seeing pride or die on the hoodies. But when Lino first got arrested, he like wouldn't tell these cops what had gone down. And in my mind, I was like, man, you should tell these cops. But David, when Oreski's leaving the police station, he whistles. And then two of the arresting officers jump up and follow him immediately. And I was like, I was like, oh, these two cops are part of uh, Team Corruption led by Hareski. So Lino is smart not to trust them. But I'm dumb because like you said, when Lino shows up, he's talking to Bruno, one of the other officers. And he's like, I'll only talk to Julia. Please get in touch with Julia. And Bruno's like, yeah. I'll do that, my friend. And of course, who's going to show up but Oreski? Bruno's not to be trusted. Nobody's to be trusted. But I, I would, I would have absolutely trusted him. I'd be like, "Hey, call Julia for me, please." But Lino's sitting in the interrogation room. Oreski tells, I guess Bruno. He's like, "Don't, don't let him get anywhere." He's like, "Yeah, yeah, don't worry." Lino's like, "Man, I'm fucked. I, I gotta get out of here." And he starts like trying to pry himself loose because he's handcuffed to like this this metal loop that's been like welded to a metal table. And the cops are even like they they're watching on the security feed. He even like calls over another cop to be like, hey, look at this idiot trying to escape. But uh, here's the thing. Lino's not an idiot. And he fucking escapes. He gets out of the handcuffs and these cops try to be like subdue him. But he ends up kicking uh, quite a lot of ass, David. Mac, another funny moment. They're watching him on the camera. Lino picks up the chair. They watch him pick up the chair and try to use it as fulcrum to to pry off the, the little metal ring. And they're like, every single time, everyone always tries that. But then Lino takes the chair apart and starts ripping the bottom of it off. And then they get concerned and they're like, uh, Oreski locked that door, right? It's like, God damn it. Why are you so funny, unfunny movie? But sure enough, he gets out and it's on like Donkey Kong. Here comes Lino. This is going to be our first real fight of the movie. He goes into like the kind of the bullpen area of the precinct and he takes on everybody there. This is awesome, Mac. This really impressed me because the combat is, is realistic. Like it really feels... Like, Lino is getting into a fight with these officers. There's nothing particularly glamorous about it. There's nothing camera-ready about it. It's just a fight. But because of that realism, it's fucking beautiful. I really enjoyed these fights. Yeah, it was a very cool fight. And it doesn't have, like, the same momentum as, like, a fight that you'd see, like, in The Raid. Like, for example, Rama from The Raid movies or anyone that Jet Li plays. Like, imagine if they, like, opened up the doors to a police station and started fighting people. They would probably kick everyone's ass in there. I'd feel pretty confident that was going to happen. But with this one, there's not that same kind of confidence. Like, you get the feeling like, oh, man, how's he going to make it out of there? And you also see when when Lino gets punched, there's a moment there where he kind of, like, winces or, like, just kind of sits there in, like, in, in obvious pain. He's not a Superman in this scene, but he still manages to win. But, David, there's... One part early on when he's like trying to fight three people at the same time and there's a smaller police officer, a woman, and he picks her up and kind of like throws her onto a desk. And I did not expect a cop to get body slammed in this scene. 
And just something about that. It hit me the right moment. It was my first mom. It was my first mark out moment of this movie. Sure. Yeah. No, I'm right there with you. In fact, I've got one coming up right now because Lino's going to beat up everybody in that in that precinct bullpen. He's going to try to leave out the front door. Uh, he's going to pass the, you know, that main desk where they're, it's kind of the the processing area where they're bringing in new criminals to to get their fingerprints and stuff like that. And Lino's going to get spotted. So Lino's just going to turn on the first cop he sees and start ratatatting him. And then he's going to lay waste to everybody else. There's going to be a criminal coming in who's, you know, he's in handcuffs. He gets sat down for processing and he sees Lino go into town on these cops and he goes, yeah, fuck him up. That's going to be my first mark out moment. Just writing the momentum of this fight, <laughs> letting it build, and then just having it culminate in like, go get him, Lino. This was going to be a mark out moment for me. Yeah, that dude was handcuffed. And you know, as soon as Lino successfully left the building, after the cops like dust themselves off, they're probably beating the shit out of that guy. So <laughs> I hope it was worth it. But it turns out Lino is not quite Superman because he is not able to escape the police station. Three different cops have got him. They're, they're, they're all grabbing him. They're taking him back out. But Lino manages to reach a hand. Uh-oh, he grabs a mace or the pepper spray or whatever from the cops. He maces the entire fucking room. And then, yes, he does escape. So mace in your face and then a quick escape from Lino. He did it. He did it. So while Julia and Superior Officer Moss check out the scene where Charis's body and torched car were found, Areski reveals his plans to Marco to double the production of their secret go-fast smuggling operation. Lino surprises Julia at the task force garage headquarters and professes his innocence. Julia doesn't buy it and tries to arrest him. Lino escapes, but not before realizing that Charis's charred car sitting in the garage might not be all that it seems. I parked my Charis's charred car and have it, yeah, David. Perfect French accent. Thank you. So this plan that Oreski uh, reveals to Marco, this seems to me more like the plan equivalent of like a, a coke-written screenplay. Because Marco's like, we just fucking shot our boss. This sucks. This is not how I wanted this to go. And Oreski's like, nah, man, nah. Keep it together, Marco. Uh, this is great. Look. With with Charles out of the way, we'll be able to like uh, double the amount of uh, uh, of stuff we sneak in when I'm in charge of the department. Yeah, yeah, man, that's the plan the whole time. Yeah, cocaine. You're absolutely right because on top of that cocaine fueled logic is the fact that Areski is not fooling anybody. He shows up at the crime scene. He's basically getting in Moss's ear. He's like, "Look at what Lino did to Charles," and Moss is immediately like, "No, Charles wouldn't get played like that." She's immediately suspicious of no this good cop wouldn't have gotten taken in by this obviously flimsy premise and so a rescue still needling her is like come on put me in charge of the, of the anti-go fast brigade and she, her immediate response is that's not what charis would have wanted he's dead he should not factor into into these decisions but a rescue is such a fuck up he's such a known fuck up that no i won't even give you the pleasure of taking over this thing that you don't deserve. Like, Oreski's so in over his head on this. Yeah, and then Oreski's like, fine, I'll go catch the man who murdered Charis. It's like, <laughs> the fact that this is not a priority for you, huge red flag. That might actually come a little later. Yeah, because that's when Oreski tells a secret he should not have told. But you make a very good point about this being cocaine logic, about, you know, not making any sense or just kind of being in over your head. Because like you said, you know, the whole reason Oreski wants to be in charge of the anti-go-fast brigade is because he's a corrupt cop and he has his own drug trade. And by controlling the anti-go-fast brigade, he can control who they bust and don't bust. So now Oreski's side job is able to get twice as much product through. I, I think we talked about this with like RoboCop 2. How much is enough? When you get 100% saturation in the market, when everybody who wants the drug has the drug, do you really need to be ratcheting up your business? Are you are you planning on going international with your local cop side hustle? Like, I don't, 
I don't quite get the cocaine logic here. Yeah, at least have him like open up a briefcase and he's like, here's the uh, house I want to build or here's pictures of the yacht I'm looking to buy or the youth center I'm looking to get named after me or something. But yeah, the idea of like this corrupt cop who's getting super wealthy off this deal, he's like, ah, I need to be super wealthier. But David, why is Oreski not concerned about the evidence, right? He shot Charis. There's a bullet from his gun lodged in Charis's Renault 21. Why isn't uh, Oreski trying to get that bullet back? Well, as far as Oreski knows, the evidence is burned. You know, they show up, charred car, charred Charis. This is great. Everything's taken care of. But it turns out Lino might uh, might have uh, other ideas. Yeah, because when Lino goes back to the team's like headquarters slash car garage and tries to convince Julia that he didn't do it, uh, Julia doesn't believe him. They struggle, but on his way out, Lino looks at the car and he goes, wait, that car, the burned car, has the wrong rims. That means it's not Charles's car. Charles's car is still out there. And he runs off to go do this thing. But then after, uh, oh, but, but uh, in order to run off, he handcuffs Julia to the burned car or something else. I don't remember. But he does it right before she chokes him out. But right before this fight, Lino tells Julia, like, hey, I didn't kill Charis. Oreski killed Charis. Oreski and Marco are corrupt. And then when Oreski comes later, he's like, how are you, Julia? And she's like, not good. Lino was saying all this crazy stuff. He actually accused you and Marco of being bad. And it's like, oh, God damn it. Why did you just tell Oreski that you're onto him? Like, Julia, get some instincts, girl. Like, Moss knew better. Moss instantly smelled out this piece of shit of Resky. You got to do a better job than that. Yeah, the people in this movie don't really think things through. And uh, I, I think it shows in the script. Yeah, I'm not saying immediately arrest Oreski, but just keep it close to your vest until you, you learn a little bit more. Oh, Julia. And also, Julia, if you think you can trust Oreski, uh, think again, because the scheming Oreski manages to sideline Julia by revealing her past relationship with Lino to Moss. Meanwhile, Lino is on the hunt for Charis's real missing car. Lino manages to rescue Quentin from his employer Jacques, and Quentin reveals he knows where the missing car is because he hid it. Lino and Quentin meet with Julia and convince her to help them or else wear the guilt of leaving them to die. Oreski and Marco also kill Jacques and his henchmen and blame those murders on Lino too. So when Oreski is talking to Julia and Julia's like, you know, uh, Lino actually accused you. <laughs> That's crazy, right? And Oreski's like, yeah, so crazy. Don't worry though, I have your side when they come for you. And Julia's like, the fuck are you talking about? Why would they come for me? And he's like, because you had a past relationship with Lino. I won't tell anybody. And then as soon as she leaves, he's like, hey, Moss, leave Julia alone. Just because she had this relationship with Lino that you didn't know about until I said it just now. So yeah, I did not even know they had a relationship until that moment. I was like, oh, oh okay, interesting. I guess in the two years from when he looked at her photo to, well, you know, in that moment, we still don't know if their relationship was like after he went to jail or before he went to jail. We find out later that it was after he got out of jail while he was working on the cops. Then he and Julia, I don't know, like hooked up a couple times. Is that the kind of vibe you get? Yeah, kind of, you know, a drunken Friday night mechanics tryst. I, I didn't think it was anything. Well, that's sort of the other thing, Mac. We don't really know the severity of it. Not, I don't, I don't suppose that matters. I guess a kiss is just as damaging as rounding third who knows what sort of connection julia has to lino but it's enough to to arouse suspicion it must have been something though because when we first start the movie julia is very cold and like dismissive to lino like go away what do you want so obviously like you know either he crossed a line or her feelings were hurt i just assume because he's european he's got a mistress so that that's my guess but i don't know but mac Oreski's scheming here where he's 
running to Moss, telling her about Julia's fling with Lino. Lino's pretending to be the good guy for Julia while he's putting his hand on her knee, that kind of thing. I didn't, I didn't know Areski had bitch mode in him. So far, we've seen him murder Charis in cold blood, and the most villainous thing he's doing is spreading gossip. Watching him lie to Julia and watching him lie to Moss and try to put these pieces in place, I was so much more upset about that, about the scheming, than I was about the cold-blooded murder, which I guess I, I, that's just European action for you. Yeah, and you'd think that this like web of lies would, uh, he'd get caught in it, or it would just, he's like, basically turning into a noose that's around his own neck. But no, for the most part, he's actually just doing a pretty good job of surrounding uh, Lino with more obstacles and evidence that points to Lino as the murderer. So good job, Oreski, I guess. But Lino, he knows that his only chance of proving his innocence is finding this car with this bullet in it. And so he goes back to the chop shop to try and get Quinn out of there. And he's trying to like, he sees the nondescript thug. So there's like Jacques, right? He's like, I guess the bad guy. And he's got um, like one of his hands doesn't work or something like that, or he's missing a hand. Did you see, notice the way he like held a rifle? Basically like one of his hands does not work. I don't know if it's a, uh, a prosthetic or not, but his thug, David, <sighs> European thugs, they just don't have it. You know what I mean? All these Euro thugs look like cruise ship massage therapists, David. They don't really look like dudes <laughs> who are going to do any damage. Take this guy, Give him like a summer abroad in the U.S., go to New Jersey or anywhere else. I guarantee this guy will come back look like a real menace. But right now he looks kind of like, you know, like a erotic dance instructor. There's a real glass jawed boxer vibe where it's like, you look tough. You've got glamour muscles, but there's no way you're going to beat me in a fight. Like, uh, yeah, I, I completely get what you're saying. But Quentin betrays his employers and he and Lino are about to escape. Or excuse me, they're able to escape. And Quentin's like, I know the location of the car. It's in this like secret stash farm that uh, Jacques has. Let's go there right now. And the bad guys, before the tables get turned on them, they call uh, the corrupt cops, Oreski and Marco. And they're like, hey, come over here. We got your we got your dudes. But then when Oreski and Marco show up, there's no Lino and Quentin. There's just Jacques and his thug together in a, in a trunk of a car. Pretty solid escape here because Quentin's getting ready to drive Jacques away while the massage therapist is taking care of Lino. He's going to stuff Lino in the trunk of a car. So Quentin's going to throw his car that he's driving in mega reverse so that Jacques flies out of the back window, <laughs> yeah. certainly to his own death, one would assume. But no, he, he's fine. But they stuff him into the trunk of the car. I thought that was great, you know, uh, to be able to get away and leave and leave Jacques and his thug in the trunk of the car for a rescue and Marco to discover this, this was another fun moment. Yeah, you're not kidding. It really was like mega reverse because he had about like 40 feet, if that, to, uh, I don't know what that is in meters, to like back the car into something. But in that small amount of time when they do make impact, yeah, Jacques goes flying out of the back window. I don't know if like European cars have sugar glass at the back there, but it was it was stunning. Kind of like how in Mission Impossible 2, when Tom Cruise's motorcycle like floats for a little bit, it was that level of like, whoa, I don't think <laughs> physics worked that way. But that is, that was okay. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. The physics absolutely don't work unless the back seat is slanted. If it's like an, a ramp that just shoots him out the window. But no, it, that's not how seats are built uh, for safety reasons. But Resky's like, no new friends, no loose ends. And so he fucking blasts Jacques. And then Marco takes the uh, massage therapist thug and he's like, I'm out of bullets. And so he lifts the back of his, he lifts up his gun to basically bludgeon the thug with the, you know, the, what do you call it? Not the barrel. What's that? The stock? The butt. The butt of the gun. The gun butt. 
And before he can bring it down on the head of the massage therapist thug, there's a cool moment here, right? Because the thug goes like, hey, uh, I can tell you where uh, the car is. And he's like, what car? And he's like, no, look, Jacques didn't burn the car like he said he did. He kept it for insurance. There's evidence linking a rescue to the murder and still out there. But don't worry, I'll tell you where the car is if you spare my life. And then cut to Moss getting a phone call from a rescue. And then Moss gets off the phone and she's like, well, you happy now, Julia? Your boy Lino just made two more corpses. And I was like, wait, two more corpses? We saw a rescue kill Jacques, but we saw Marco. I thought he was going to spare the life of the massage therapist thug. Smash cut to Marco's gun. He's walking and you get a close-up on his gun and you can see the barrel of the gun is just covered in blood. Meaning, oh shit, he did cave that guy's head in. And then Rescue goes, what took so long? And Marco goes, he was hard-headed. That moment I went out loud, damn. <laughs> this is my second markout moment, David. I loved it. It was brutal. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, that's uh, it's jarring. I'm glad they showed that level of brutality coming out of Marco because a Rescue doesn't come off as a formidable villain. Like, if there's going to be a third act, it's not going to be a fist fight off the side of a mountain or anything like that. So to have Marco be the muscle, you know, even when when Moss finds the body of the massage therapist, Moss is like, there's some crazy people out there in the world. Like, yeah, Marco's one of those crazy people. <laughs> like, this is this is really fantastic. Yeah, because Zareski's a snake. But you get the idea from a previous conversation of theirs that Marco's maybe not 100% on board with this plan. So the fact that he, instead of sparing the guy's life, turns his head into a blood pancake, uh, that I was not expecting that in that moment. And the fact that they showed it by showing the after effects of just like the bloody butt of the gun. And then Marco's like, you know, too cool action hero delivery of like, he was hard headed. Uh, yikes and wowza. I don't know if it deserves a wowza. I'm going to walk back that wowza, David, and just keep it a yikes. But you are right. In terms of Marco, it feels like he's, he's out on a rescue at this point. It feels like he's sort of soured on the, on the deal between those two. And in fact, after they kill Jacques and the massage therapist, we're just going to call him the massage therapist. Areski's like, come on, Marco, we're almost done. We just need to kill two more people. We just need to kill Lino and Quentin, and it's all over. We're done with all the witnesses. And Marco's like, I'm a witness too. Like, he knows, look, I can be your henchman for so long until you turn on me. So I, I need to make sure I get you before you get me. I just wish it would have paid off, oh. but I'm okay with what the movie's doing here. So you think maybe uh, Marco's brutal killing was sending a message to Areski of like, A, don't fuck with me, and B... I'm in it to win it too. I'm not like, you know, I'm not sitting on the fence here. I'm definitely a team murderer, I guess. I think it served well just on the surface level of Marco's a bad guy. But yeah, the movie is setting up the possibility of a face turn, which I thought would have been exponentially more satisfying, but that's okay. It, it's just, you know, Marco's a thug. He's going to be the muscle for this for this group. And I think I think the movie's okay with just leaving it at that. So Mac, Lino and Quentin make it to Jacques' secret stash farm where Lino searches for Charis' car while Quentin finds a big bag of cash. But when Marco shows up at the farm, Quentin also finds a stomach full of buckshot courtesy of Marco. Lino subdues Marco, finds the car, and tries calling Julia, but her phone is now evidence, and Oreski answers the call instead. While Julia tries to convince Moss that Lino was innocent, Lino gets to work on a plan to turn in Charis' car and put the screws to Oreski. Does the plan involve more dramatic welding? You bet your baguettes it does. So, David, uh, this stash farm that Quentin leads Lino to. Ah, I gotta say this, like, uh, old abandoned in the woods farm still looks pretty romantic. You gotta hand it to these European vistas. Like, if it was an American movie, 
the farm would be some like sort of swampy old abandoned farm in Louisiana where Lord knows what kind of satanic incest stuff was happening. Oh, it's True Detective all over again. It's funny you should point that out. There was a moment when Marco or Marco's body, I, I can't quite tell which, is handcuffed to the fireplace. And, you know, it's a pretty tense action moment. Quentin has just died. But I'm looking at the scene. I'm going, wow, look at the tile work on that fireplace. That's really beautiful. It's like, this is just some farm in the middle of nowhere, France. Like the the level of effort and beauty in this farmhouse, this abandoned farmhouse. Like, fuck this country. Yeah, seriously. Our farmhouses are where uh, chainsaw massacres take place. Their abandoned criminal farmhouses looks like like Jean-Luc's going to teach me how to make uh, a perfect uh, croque-monsieur or whatever. Croque-monsieur? I don't even know. I'm out of my depth here, David. But still, this place does look sufficiently abandoned. And by that, I mean... Dirty dishes, newspapers, like, it makes me wonder, when a house is about to get abandoned, do the homeowners know it and kind of live accordingly, where it's like, you don't have to wash those dishes, we're leaving in a month. Like, how does an abandoned house get so abandoned? Yeah, I don't know, because I I got the impression that Jacques still uses that farm for some reason. Maybe he just, like, doesn't give a shit. Maybe he's like, uh, all right, we're right, let's go back to our chop shop. It's like, shouldn't we clean up afterwards? He's like, no, uh, let us not do that. But Quinn runs in and he's like, yeah, fuck your car, man. I know where uh, Jacques keeps a whole bunch of money. The next thing we know, Quinn has an entire bag of cash. He walks outside of the house. He's framed by a door. And then we hear Marco show up, but we don't see him. Quinn turns to look through the door at Lino, at us in the camera. And then Quinn basically just like gets blown backwards. Just a brutal takedown here of Quentin, thanks to uh, Marco's shotgun. I was not expecting it. You know, generally movies are pretty good about telegraphing the end of a character. I wasn't expecting this this murder. It, it caught me by surprise. And, you know, that's that's what you want in an action movie. But now Lino has to fight off Marco. Lino's able to find a gun, but the gun, it looks like kind of like an old, um, you know, double barrel hunting rifle or something. It's got no bullets in it. So at first they kind of have like a sword fight with guns. And I was like, oh, is this going to be the whole fight? This is kind of interesting. But it's not, a, I would not call this a full on action set piece because it is kind of a, a quick fight. But I did get a JFC, a Jesus fucking Christ, David, because at some point, Marco, Lino knocks him backwards. And on his way down, Marco hits his head against the table. And uh, props to the sound design team of this movie because him hitting the table, I, <laughs> just with the sound alone, I felt it. You know, I'm right there with you in terms of not wanting to call this an action set piece. It's hard to call the fights in this movie action, again, because they're so real and so brutal. I also JFC'd at that moment when he million dollar babies himself on the corner of the table. But like, it's almost like if you're on 6th Street on a Saturday night and you see a fight break out, you're not going to be like, oh boy, action. You're going to be like, oh, I hope these two people are all right. That's what this fight in particular feels like. It's not action for the sake of a movie. It is action for the sake of Lino, the character's survival. Like it is, there is a purpose to him fighting and it is to beat Marco so that Marco doesn't kill him. And part of that Jesus fucking Christ is the wound Marco gets, which his head is like split open. It looks like his brains are trying to get out. And now Lino has a gun and Marcos is hurt. At this point though, shooting Marco is pretty much just like an execution. And we cut to like an outside shot of a farmhouse or whatever, barn house, just the house. And you see the you know muzzle flash of a gun. And you're like, oh, I guess Lino did shoot him. But then later on, we cut back inside and he did not shoot Marco. And Marco's now handcuffed to something. If Lino didn't shoot Marco, what the fuck was the gunfire for? Was it just like a uh, point break style? Like, oh, I'm mad, but I can only use my emotions with a gun. That's the only thing I could think of. But that kind of gun is the least effective for doing something like that. You want a pistol with a clip and a pow, 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 pow. No. Yeah. But this one's like, no. Boom. And load up the thing. 
boom, no. There's there's a real delay in the drama. Belina goes outside to find Quentin, who crawled over to like a tire of a tractor and dies behind the tire of a tractor. But Quinn's holding on to like some sort of uh, metal, uh, not rope, but like a cable. Uh, Lino follows the cable and it leads to, oh my goodness, it's the Red Renault. It's still intact. And sure enough, there is that, oh, that lost bullet. He found it. And so Lino uh, is going to call Julia and say, hey, he's got the evidence. But David, Julia was taken into custody because she helped Quentin and uh, Lino escape earlier. And Oreski's other fellow corrupt cops took her into to custody. So her phone is now evidence, and Oreski has it. He picks up the phone. Lino and Oreski are talking, David, and they kind of together kind of cut a showdown promo here. It's like their final showdown, because he's like, I got the got the car. And Oreski's like, the car's been burned. What's this? Foghorn sound we heard earlier. And he's like, I'm coming for you. And Oreski's like, well, it's SummerSlam. Your ass is mine. And he's like, the cream rises to the top, Oreski. <laughs> Lino's like, what are you going to do when Hulkamania runs over you? But Oreski's like, time to unleash the madness. I'm the Macho Man uh, Randy Savage. And yeah, yeah, David, it's going to be uh, it's gonna be a good showdown, I think. Another low-key funny moment for me, because up until this point, Oreski is so cocky. He's so calm. He's undefeated in this movie. Everything he does is inexplicably right. So for... Lino to call and be like, I've got something for you. And Oreski's like, what could you possibly have that's going to scare me? Foghorn noise. Oreski turns on a dime. He gets effectively panicky. He's like, you son of a bitch. I'm going to you know, <laughs> I'm gonna get you. You'll never win. It's like, this is really good stuff. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, me too. Now, David, the movie started with Lino like modifying this car to turn into a battering ram and driving it. So he has this like car making skills, but David, ever since he, this whole, the trouble started, right? With, with Charles's death, we haven't really seen any car shit out of Lino. So it's like, oh man, time for the final showdown. Lino better get back on that car shit. And I was like, if this movie ends and Lino doesn't make another supercar, I'm going to be so pissed, David, but I need not have worried because I, I'm pretty sure it's about to happen. But David, switching gears real quick, car pun. I went to Wikipedia to read about this movie under the reception section of the movie. It was talking about the uh, the reception the movie received from critics. And at some point it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody pointed out that it's got a bad plot. And it mentioned some, uh, some critical comments about the story. Actually, just one. On the Wikipedia, it says, Rodney 12 Tree notes, a single photo of the car could have exposed the true villain. Meaning that Lino didn't need to go all this trouble to recover the car or even try to bring it back to police headquarters, which he's just about to do, he could have just taken a picture of it. And I was like, wait, is that right? I don't think it is. Let's say he sends a picture to the police station. He's like, this is Charis's car. They have no evidence that he didn't like fuck with it, right? Yeah, he would need to take at least five pictures, I think, because he needs to take an establishing shot of the car. He needs to take a photo of him holding today's newspaper, letting him know this is a recent photo of the car. He needs to take a photo of the inside of the dashboard. Look, Roddy Tree. I appreciate what you're doing here. You're oversimplifying this movie to make yourself feel smart. Like, hey, Back to the Future, why didn't they just go get a blood test and prove that he's her son? Like, don't think about things that way. This is not helping. Just enjoy the movie for what it is. Yeah, the fact that there's a car with a bullet in it, that doesn't mean anything. It's that the bullet matches as the, you know, it's a ballistical match. Ballistical? It's a ballistic match to Oreski's gun. That is the, uh, the evidence here. And so, David, this this quote had a little footnote. I clicked on the footnote, and it leads to just some dude's dumb review website. Rodney Twelvetree clearly edited Wikipedia to put his own quote in there. I don't know who you are, Rodney Twelvetree. I'm telling you right now, you're banned from this show forever. 
I don't know if you or some agent of yours or just some internet dummy put this quote in there. Maybe it was you had nothing to do with it. But the fact that it was in there and you're so cocky and you're so fucking wrong, you're banned from the show. And hopefully you're alive and you're not dead. <laughs> you met some tragic kid <laughs> and I'm just piling on uh, some of the some terrible tale of humanity. But in case you're just some dude, you're banned. Okay, Mac, let me ask you this. What does it take for a citation to be legitimate on Wikipedia? It's like one source or two source or something like that. I don't fucking know. <laughs> well, we better know because I want Punch Mountain peppering Wikipedia sites. I want us to be quoted. I want us to be referenced. I, I need our audience, if you have Wikipedia editing skills, start putting Punch Mountain uh, into into Wikipedia sites. I want to see evidence that we're making waves. It's like Need for Speed got 42% on Rotten Tomatoes. However, some people described his action scenes as sick. <laughs> Quote, like, hold on, wait, <laughs> yes. what? Punch Mountain episode 36 or whatever it was. Yes, I want this very badly. But Mac, Oreski and some other cops are going to set up a roadblock to stop Lino, but Lino has turned Charis' car into a murder car. It's an action set piece we'll call Make Way for Murder Car, a.k.a. Follow That Bullet. Lino blows past the roadblock, but Oreski is in hot pursuit. Julia joins the chase and flips Oreski's car, but the beaten Oreski throws a grenade into Charis' car, destroying the evidence, right? Wrong! Lino drives the flaming murder car back to the precinct garage, showing Moss the proof that Charis was murdered by Oreski. Oreski becomes a fugitive, leaving his family behind. Lino gets an early release, and Charis ends up with a pretty cool memorial. So we get some footage of Lino, like, building his new murder car, right? But we, we don't really know what he's built. We just know that he's, like, adding something to the front of it. He even says out loud, like, you know, uh, I'm sorry I have to do this to your beloved car, Charis, or whatever. And at some point, he's at a gas station, and he's filling up this murder car with gas. And some other people get out. They see the murder car. We still don't see it. But these other people react to it, and then Lino's like, oh, it's for a movie. And like, oh, okay. Because Lino's also like covered in blood at this point. But David, this gas station, is it the same gas station as the one he got arrested at? It's the same gas station. It's the same employee working. He looks out the window, sees Lino, is like, it's that guy again. So this employee's going to call the cops and let them know, hey, this guy is back that I just had you arrest a while back. And I thought it was dumb at first. And now that I'm thinking about it, it's less dumb because it was like, Lino, you got arrested here recently. Why are you going back to this gas station? But now that I think about it, I think it was so that the employee could call the cops and let them know, hey, Omar coming and, you know, murder car is on its way. And so while Oreski waits at the roadblock, he gets word that murder car is coming or that Lino's coming. He doesn't know about the murder car yet. <laughs> and so a couple of uh, his other cop buddies, I think it's, what you said his name was Bruno. The dude from the PlayStation, yeah. Yeah. They're in a car, and they're like, all right, we're going to intercept Lino. And here we get a reveal of what murder car looks like. And David, it's the same kind of setup as other smasher cars have, which is like a really just this, you know, reinforced iron grill. But in the front of this grill, David, are like two, like, hook horns coming out of this thing. This car looks like a fucking murder car. You're not wrong. Yeah, this was the reveal of it because the the movie does a really good job of hiding it up until the very last moment. Like there's a quick chase where some cops are trying to apprehend the murder car from behind. Murder car slips in front of a big rig. So they think, oh my God, it's sped away. Oh no, no, no. Murder car is, is laying in wait so that it could come up from behind you and use its hooks to hook under the police car and basically just drag the rear axle away from the car. This was awesome. The reveal of murder car was awesome. The close-up shots underneath the police car where it basically gets ripped in half. I marked out. This was fantastic. David, this is our second 
movie in a row, along with Need for Speed, where a police car gets its rear axle ripped off. What a weird and very specific thing. But David, I also loved it. Another mark I'm over for me. That's going to become an automatic, I think, because I also marked out a Need for Speed, too. So if you've got a cop car, unaxle it, and I'll mark out for you. But David Lino is not done with his cop car. He's using his uh, murder car's uh, you know, horn grills. After ripping off the rear axle, he hits the car again, kind of like mounts the back of the cop car on murder car's front horns. And now, David, this uh, cop car, he, Lino's like in control of it. Yeah, he basically turns this cop car into a human shield car to be the lead blocker as he plows through a rescue's roadblock. And a rescue doesn't care. He's like, shoot the tires out, shoot the police car, shoot everything. And like, we know from the beginning of the movie that these police cars are now bulletproof. They're ba- they really are basically death proof. But if you're in that car, if you're those two cops just working your job, you can't feel good about your coworkers shooting at you with no regard for how this turns out for you. Yeah, there's no amount of bulletproof that makes me comfortable with a, a bullet uh, bouncing off the piece of glass in front of my face. <laughs> I'm not like, oh, what a relaxing. It's like a rain stick, David. It really just <laughs> takes the edge off. So Lino, having blown past that roadblock, is now on his way. His mission is to take that Renault and drive it to the task force, like police task force, headquarters slash garage, deliver the evidence to Moss to prove his innocence. But Oreski is not going to take us lying down. He hops in a police cruiser, and he's burning rubber trying to chase down Lino. And at some moment, David, they drive past this pedestrian who's like kind of tries to jump out of the way. And he makes an interesting little like noise here. David, that wasn't like the funniest woe in the world, but I did notice it specifically because like I imagine that guy, you know, I, I don't know if the director planned on using the audio of him going like, oh, but maybe because he did such a good <laughs> job with his like, oh, kind of noise. The director's like, no, perfect. Leave that in. Next thing you know, this guy's telling his friends, he's like, yeah, check me out. Around an hour 19 <laughs> in this movie, there's my woe. David, if I had a signature in a movie, like a cool movie, I would... Uh, that might be all I'm missing in my life. You know what, David? I, I would feel like my film career, uh, you, you could start it and end it right there. That's all I, would, all I would ask for. You say that now, but ask a young Ronald Wilhelm when he first went to a movie. He was like, hey, check out this noise I made in the movie and now, now look at it. Yeah, perhaps uh, instead of the Wilhelm scream, this is the uh, Pierre. I also did clock that noise. It seemed out of place. Because this movie is so realistic, it you know there was a cartoonishness to the reaction. But now that we're talking about it, the fact that this is such a realistic movie makes me think that was a realistic reaction. Like, <laughs> you think that was a real person? <laughs> well, I don't think they were caught off guard. I don't think this is like a faces of death kind of situation. But like, I think if I were walking the streets of Paris and a high-speed chase went past me, I could see myself going like, ah! if that makes it in the movie, hey man, that's going to make it into the movie. <laughs> David, I was walking inside my house one day or walking up to my front door and there was a snake, a large snake. I mean, you know, when I say large, most people might call it small, but it was just, you know, in my front uh, door area and I saw it and I screamed and you might think it was a shameful moment, David, but I was actually kind of proud because I would have bet money in a situation where I am surprised by a large snake, I would have been like, ah, but instead the noise I made was more like, and the fact that I did a lower, like more manly (laughs) scream of uh, total fright, I was like, yeah, I'm a man. Snakes scare me, sure. But that doesn't mean I don't go high. I stay, I stay low. Today I'm a man. Snake removal, $2,000. Please get here as soon as you can. Oh, what? It's not even a poisonous snake? I don't care. I piss my fucking pants. Dude style. But David, Julia 
she's managed to escape with Moss. How does she get out from Moss? I think Moss let her go, right? Moss hears over the scanner that they found Murdercar. Murdercar is on its way. So this is all that Moss needs to be convinced. She throws Julia the keys to the handcuff. She's like, all right, you're free. Let's go apprehend Areski. Let's go apprehend Lena. Let's get this thing solved. But Moss makes the mistake of leaving Julia alone for 10 seconds because as she's gathering her keys in her purse, Julia gets in a car and splits, leaving Moss behind. Another funny yeah. moment in an unfunny movie. <laughs> that is funny. Like, let's go. Great. No, I said, damn it. <laughs> oh, but then there's a payoff later. Oh, I'll, we'll get that in just a second. So Julia, she catches up with Oreski and Lino. And then together, they're like all driving like like a three abreast. Lino slams on the brakes. So then Julia and Oreski like blow past Lino. Julia rams her car into Oreski. Oreski wrecks his car into a bunch of parked cars. Julia then hits a parked car with her car, David. And you have to think, there goes the entire police budget for the next year. I don't know how many <laughs> civilian cars that they just destroyed that I assume they now have to pay for, right? Who pays for these destroyed cars? Police insurance? Oh, I can't imagine France has like the military police budgets that we have. So yeah, they're, they're like, sacre bleu, this is going to cost us thousands of dollars. Like, they're probably going to have to sell all of those fake cars that they had in the garage that they were setting up. Ah, uh, finally, a world-class drug treatment facility sponsored by the police. Uh, no longer will we just arrest criminals. We shall hear them all know our budget has been slashed <laughs> by the explosion squad with their fucking battering ram cars. Ah, I'm losing this accent by the second. So, David, it looks like Lena's going to drive that Renault uh, right back to uh, police headquarters and everything's going to be all right. But, David, earlier in the movie, we saw, I don't know how where he got it, but Oreski has a grenade. I don't know how he got it. I don't know where he got it, but he throws it into the back of the Renault, blowing up the car, setting it on fire. Surely that's going to be the end of the line for Lino and his hope for redemption. Oh, no, no, no. Lino gets in that car and he still drives it. He still drives a car on fire back to the garage. Mac, this is going to be a mark out moment for me. This car's on fire and he's driving it. That's amazing. Like, I, I, I have no words for it. I really can't do it justice. It's just like, how badass is that to get in the car and be like, oh, I'm still taking you home. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. After Oreski threw the grenade, Lino, like seconds before, Lino starts beating the shit out of Oreski. And then after the grenade goes off, I think Lino <laughs> keeps punching Oreski. He's watching the car go up in flames, does not have his eyes on Oreski on the ground, but you just still see the fist. You still hear the noise. <laughs> Another funny moment in an unfunny movie. And he's like, let me, let me figure out what to do here, but I'm not going to stop punching it. So David cut back to Moss and Julia just drove away with the only car that works. So Moss is like, hey, uh, can, I need another police cruiser. Somebody get here. And she's like, God damn it, I need a car. That's when Lino's flaming car bursts in the police station. It doesn't exactly come to a slow stop. It crashes into a wall. And Lino goes flying through the fucking front windshield. But the other mechanic there, I forget his name, he manages to put out the fire. So the car has now arrived with the piece of missing evidence. Uh, Lino, having, having uh, just flown through the windshield of a car, is still alive. And it looks like they got everything they need on a rescue to make an arrestee. You knew it was coming. You knew it was coming. The arrestee, <laughs> shitty arrestee pun. It was, his name's Arrestee for Christ's sakes. I mean, you let me do Charles's charred car. I figured it had to do, we had to do a one for one on this one. In my mind, people were expecting it to be like arrestee, more like arrest me. So in, in my mind, I was zigging where, where you expect me to zag. But yeah, all they have to do is apprehend arrestee, 
But Oreski makes a break for it. He goes back home. He, you see him activating a secret panel in his closet. He's got a big stash of cash. And he's probably got some weapons. I forget. But Mac, he does not live alone. He is not a swinging single bachelor, is he? No, even through glass, you can tell he's got a beautiful wife and a lovely child. And he has this giant stack of money. In my mind, David, if I fucked up and I'm about to be one of the most wanted people in all of France and I had a bunch of illegal money, I would give it to my wife and I'd be like, hey, I'm a fuck up. I'm so sorry, but I guess I care about our family. So here, you take this money, go give it to your sister to hide for a second because I just fucked our income. But he's like, no, he takes all of it. He looks out at his uh, wife and kid, gives him a smile like, yeah, I like these guys. And then fucking bolts. Ugh, Resky, what a piece of shit. Super huge piece of shit. Like, there's so many ways this could have gone. Like, I almost wish, again, I really wish the walls had closed in on this guy. I wanted a moment of just feeble desperation. He runs in. He's trying to convince his wife, let's go. We, you know, we got to get on the run. Any number of things. Anything like that to just show him, hey, it's over, you loser. But uh, I guess we do have to set up Lost Bullet 2, which now that I say it out loud, I hope they get him real good in Lost Bullet 2. Yeah, maybe that bullet finds its way into Oreski's skull. But David, when Lino made the choice to, instead of like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll just tell the truth and truth, she'll set me free. When he made the choice to be like, you know, fuck it, I got to fight my way out of this police station. I was like, well, that's it. There's no going back. You know, you might catch the bad guy, but you're going to be an outlaw for life. But the fact that he manages... To be right back where, uh, you know, in, in, in good times before Sharas got murdered because he's back in Moss's office and Moss gives him that early release that he was going to get. He managed to put that genie back in the bottle. I don't know if that's the most apt metaphor here, but he does it. I mean, sure, Quinn is dead, Charles is dead, but he's a free man again. He being Lino. He's a free man because he single-handedly cleaned up this police force. Like, you got to figure almost everybody, you got to figure Moss and Julia are the only two non-crooked people on this police force. So to get rid of everybody, yeah, clean slate, start over. But I feel like if if you're an American who is innocent, cops think you're guilty, you resist arrest, you don't get a reward at the end if you're right. Like, I feel like you still go to jail or honestly probably get murdered by the, the police officer. But yeah, David, we see Moss in Charis's office and I don't know if she's decided to take over the department, right? Or yeah, she's not shutting it down. She's going to take it over. Right. And, uh, you know, Lino's downstairs talking to, to Julia. And then we see Moss kind of like cleaning up Charles' office. And out of the blue, she reaches behind the desk and pulls out a saxophone. So I guess Charles played a, the saxophone? David, what did you make of the sax, this random saxophone? Nothing. The movie didn't allow me to make anything out of it. I, I, I did see it briefly early on in the movie when oh, you're in okay. Charles' office. But it's, it's Chekhov's saxophone and it never gets used. Like... Okay, when's he going to play that sax? Is there going to be like, is this going to be hard boiled where he's in a jazz band and this is how he cuts loose? No, we never see it. We never hear it. It's a wasted saxophone, Mac. Like, let's say Moss is cleaning out Charis's office after his death. You'd expect like a bunch of papers, maybe like some uh, trophies for best cop, maybe some family photos, and then some Hialeah gear. You'd be like, wait, whoa, whoa hold on. <laughs> he played Hialeah? That saxophone. <laughs> Because I hadn't seen it before. It was such a weird thing. I was like, wait, explain that for me, please. I mean, is this kind of like Edgar Wright's Cornetto trilogy? Like, is there a, this director's ouvoir? Well, well, it's actually French. <laughs> Does every one of his movies have to like shoehorn in a saxophone cameo? They better now, because if not, there's no reason to have the saxophone in this one movie. Also, Mac, have you ever found a musical instrument and not tried to play it? 
at least not try to be like sax them a phone like just like see what you could do with it mm, not mouth based ones i don't think i would put my mouth on somebody's but uh but yeah this is a grand opportunity for for her to do that but mac uh, you know the movie's going to wrap up with lino and julia you know making amends they're very friendly again julia tries to put her arm around lino as they walk away but then the camera pans over to the final shot of the movie it is Basically a memorial. It's a makeshift memorial for Charas. It's his burned up Renault and there's flowers and there's photos and the car still has the the murder car hooks on, on the front of it. Mac, I cannot think of a better memorial. Like I, this is the kind of memorial I want. A burnt out murder car with photos and flowers. Like if you have to remember me, please remember me like that. What would be your 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 red Renault, David? And by that, I mean a trademark belonging, not necessarily something that gets involved with your murder. I, I figured the memorial is going to be based on around whatever sandwich I'm eating at the time when I get shot. Oh, this was this was David's buffalo chicken sandwich. Let's take photos or let's put photos around it of him eating other buffalo chicken sandwiches throughout the year since we have a plethora of photos of him doing that. <sighs> I think I've worn too many uh, ball caps in public, David. I'm pretty sure mine would be like a hat. It would be a, I get a hat full of flowers or probably my favorite cookies. Soon, that sounds good. I kind of want to die. <laughs> but David Moss uh, tries to tell Julie, she's like, don't let him leave. We need him to stick around and make some uh, more murder cars. And we don't know what Lino's going to do and uh, unless we watch Lost Bullet 2, which we have not yet. But David, that is the end of Lost Bullet number one. All right, David, how many mark out moments? How, would you, how many moms did you put on the board? I had three. How about you? I also had three. David, is this someone's favorite movie? It's up there. I think it's it's a perfectly fine, charming movie. I think it's one of those under-the-radar movies that you can see people championing, you know, getting the word out, trying to to get more people to watch it. So I'll say, yeah, I, I think maybe so. Yeah, I bet those people, some of those people are probably French. Uh, maybe like uh, Ruru Ru for the home team. I don't know. Okay, David, time for some punch-ups. David, we're the ultimate script doctors. Everybody knows that. How would you improve this movie? How would you punch it up? I've got a few. You know, we said at the beginning, this is a very basic, streamlined, no frills movie. I wouldn't mind some frills. And uh, my first punch up is going to be, I want some tough talk. I want some kill lines. Like we you know, we do get a bit of a wrestling promo at the beginning of the third act with Oreski and Lino. But I want like some more. I, I want just, you know, I I've said it throughout this episode. It's a, for an unfunny movie, it's very funny. But I think... By putting some ridiculous lines, by putting some, you know, some tough guy talk, it makes the funny stuff more palatable. It make, it fits better. I just think it would make for for an overall more fun experience if, if I'm allowed to have a fun experience with this movie. Yeah, I think so. My second punch up, I was wondering about Moss the entire movie. Like she never really comes out as on our side and she never really comes out as a bad guy. She's just a boss, which, you know, which is never really a thing you want to be. So pick a side, Moss. Like... If you're going to be a hero or if you're going to help the heroes, let's root for you. Let's have a mark out moment with you or you drive a murder car, you kick down a door, you shoot a rescue, something like that. Let's really, let's really root for you or root against you. Like if you, you know, if it turns out in the third act, oh my God, you knew about a rescue the whole time and you did nothing. <gasps> something. I want something out. Of, I want a big boss. Maybe, you know, that you're not expecting above a rescue. Yeah. My last punch up. Check off saxophone. Someone's got to play it. Someone's got to do something with it. You can introduce that saxophone and not do a damn thing with it. These will be my three punch-ups. How about you, Mac? Seriously, man, you got some closing credits. They could use the saxophone solo. Maybe Moss uh, picks it up. You know, she puts her lips on it, says something weirdly sexual about Charles, makes us all uncomfortable. 
And then it's just burp, 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 that's right, Baker Street, David by Rafferty. <laughs> she, she nails the fuck out of it. Just a perfect, perfect cover of Baker Street. My punch up, David, is that pride or die shirt that Lino is wearing. David, imagine the movie uh, Drive, but instead of like cool clothes, like that uh, puffy scorpion style jacket that Ryan Gosling is wearing, uh, you just have him wear like, I don't know, like uh, a hoodie that says like Old Navy on it or something. And I, I'm, David, the shirt I'm wearing right now is from Old Navy. I'm not knocking Old Navy. I also don't care about life. But my problem with this shirt is it's just lame, but it's not lame enough. Like if he was wearing a, a shirt that said like, uh, I do the do, that would, that would actually be kind of funny. I used to run a stand-up show, David, and, and part of the joke was we'd give away a different gas station hat. And we'd buy these hats with all these like, they would just say like boss on it or something like that. It's just such as, uh, pride or, you got to switch it, okay? I mean, you know, it's French. Maybe just, uh, maybe his clothes get too bloody and he's like, I guess I'll just change into the first shirt I see. And it's, of course, it's Babar the Elephant or something like that. Let's fix that shirt. Let's go in and digitally change that shirt for the special edition release, I hope. It makes me think less of him as a lead character where that's a choice he made. Like, I almost wish he had stumbled into that shirt. Like, you know, oh, he needs to hide. He needs to grab this first shirt that he finds from the from the street fair or from the carnival or something. And he puts it on. And it's like, I love piss. And it's like, oh, now I got to wear this <laughs> for the rest of the movie. Like something like that. You know, that it's silly. Yeah. And then maybe a, a bad guy's better shoot him. And he's like, you love piss? And it just gives him that one little opening <laughs> he needs to smash some more ass. I mean, and by that, I mean, yeah, whatever. All right, Dave, please join me in the Punch Man video store. David, we have three copies, three physical copies of this movie. Now, we have to figure out what shelves to put the movie in, David, but this is an all-action movie video store. So what subsections of action do these copies go in? Okay, my first copy is going to be the first entry in the French action shelf. We're going to fill this out. Just looking at the filmography of the lead character, played by Alban Lenoir, turns out he was also a stuntman. So I'm looking forward to seeing more stuff of his. Uh, Luc Besson's not too far behind, so I got a feeling we're going to pad that French action section. Uh, second one's going in police action. This is a crime movie. Feels at home there. Uh, third one's going in car action. Uh, right next to Need for Speed, right next to The Driver. We'll lock in this category. This is a fun fucking car action movie. Those all sound good to me. The only additional category that I might stock this in, and again, I wouldn't have thought this was a category, but I mean, two in a row, you, you, maybe there's more police rear axle removal movies. There's got to be a better term for that. We'll figure it out. Just need to recontextualize uh, American Graffiti into an action movie, and we got three. Did a cop car lose its rear axle in that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Nuts. Okay, David, it's time for the moment of truth, where we reveal the position of Lost Bullet on the definitive ranking of action movies, a.k.a. Punch Mountain itself. Now, David, before the mountain grants unto us its wisdom, where would you personally rank this movie? I would put it somewhere in the middle, lower middle. That's not a knock on this movie. This is a very fun movie. This was a pleasant surprise. My only knock on it is it's not an action-packed movie. It's an action-full movie. The car stuff is great. The physical fights are great. But there's just a dearth of them compared to movies higher up on this mountain. Uh, I'm very excited for Lost Bullet 2, but I think this is going to be a nice, solid middle-of-the-road pick. Yeah, I mean, it's a super solid action movie. The emotional beats of this movie, yeah, his friend is dead, his being Lino, but the action beats aren't really like matched by like emotional beats, if, if that tracks. There's some really cool moments in this movie, but I don't know if there's any like fist pump uh, moments. So, yeah, but it, it's super solid, that 100%. Oh my goodness, David, uh, let's take shelter in this murder car because you hear the sound of the rocks falling off of Punch Mountain. The golden letters are appearing. 
revealing the position of Lost Bullet, and it is number 22. So currently, there are how many movies on this fucking mountain? 40. Oh my goodness. 20 is The Mummy, 21, Top Gun Maverick, 22, Lost Bullet, 23, Birds of Prey, and the Fantabulous Emancipation One Harley Quinn, and 24, Yes, Madam. So that is its current neighborhood. To see the full rankings, go to punchmountain.com. Good stuff. I'm into it. I like that ranking. Oh my goodness, David, did you hear that? Oh my God, it's one of those weird French police sirens. That's right, David. It's the siren of a, a Renault. No, David, that's a horn <laughs> calling us to action. Because on this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This month, we're spotlighting the Clean Air Task Force. The CEATF is a group of climate and energy experts who achieve impact through technology innovation, police advocacy, and thought leadership to leverage workable solutions to this global crisis. After each episode this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to the Clean Air Task Force. Also, for every review we get on Apple Podcasts, we'll add $1 to that donation. And hey, if it's a good review, I'll probably read it on the air. For more information on the Clean Air Task Force or to donate directly to them, visit catf.us. And folks, that'll do it for another edition of Punch Mountain. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter, sorta, and we're on Instagram at Punch Mountain. Or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com, or you can keep the conversation going on Discord the link of which is in our link tree. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up next week from 2004. And directed by Brad Bird, we're watching The Incredibles. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.